Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago but at the proper time manifested even as word. In the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believed, believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it instructs us on what you want from us, that what you want for your church Lord, we pray that as we see this, that we will follow it, that we will take to heart this message, that we will obey you, that we will serve you, that we will value you above all else. Lord, please help this to be a healthy church that exalts Christ, evangelizes the lost, and edifies the believers. Help us, Father, to walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to see all of you. We have some back from the hospital. Thankful for him being here. Y'all will notice by seeing Jimmy. Thankful for you, brother. I'm glad you're back. I'm thankful for what the Lord has done in your life and how he's working to help you. We have others that are still sick, and we pray for them, right? You are praying for them. Uh, we understand that the Lord is sovereign over all these things. We trust him as the great physician, and we look to him to help us to walk with him and be faithful to him, even in the midst of a world that is uh, corrupt and messed up and definitely groaning. Isn't it groaning in anticipation of our Lord's return? I cannot wait until he returns. How about you? I don't think I've thought about the rapture as much as I have in the last two years. Over my whole time of being a believer, I've thought, man, I can't wait to see the Lord. I am so ready. I am ready. How about you? Uh, thankful for the Lord. Ready for his appearing. So we've started Titus, and the hope is, is that we can get an understanding of what a healthy church 
is and what it looks like and then kind of do a heart check for ourselves and look at ourselves and see are, are there areas that we can grow? Are there areas that we can improve? And are there areas that uh, the Lord is obviously showing his grace and is it there? These are good things. To evaluate ourselves is uh, a good thing, isn't it? Uh, to take the Bible and hold it up and say, hey, where do I fall short? <laughs> where, where can I improve? That's a good thing. Why? Because it drives us to our knees. It drives us to the one that helps us, right? We who believe in Christ know that he is our hope. He's our steadfast joy. He is why we live. He's our strength. He's our power. He's our hope and everything, right? So in order for this to happen, we have to kind of have the tearing down so that we can look up. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. To be encouraged and to be rebuked and to be exhorted is a good thing because it causes us to depend upon our Lord more. And I have to confess to you that as I looked at this uh, passage and studied this passage in the providence of the Lord, I had two weeks to examine my own self, and it wasn't pretty. Uh, what I mean by that is, is you know, uh, and I'll talk about this as we go about, uh, about this, and then we look at the qualifications for the elder. And this is like the least popular message. If you're a pastor... There's two messages you really don't long to preach. One of them is, it's time to give. And the other one is, this is what a qualified pastor looks like. Uh, because no matter how you look at it, uh, when I look at the word and I hold it up, I look at that mirror of God's holiness and his standard, I fall way short, way short. And I see my need of Christ so if there was ever a week that I, or two weeks that I've been on my face, it's been these two weeks, as I read this over and over and see God's standard for his shepherds is impossible. It's only by his grace through faith in him that any of your elders are qualified for this task. But what is a healthy church? Well... <laughs> We've talked about last week, we went over the background and kind of get the setting for this book. The book gives us and tells us what a healthy church is all about. Remember, it was written by Paul, and Paul gives this longer explanation of who he is, pointing to his slave status and also his apostleship, even though he's talking to his true child in the faith, implying what? That the letter's probably going to be read by who? The whole church. Everybody's going to hear this. Everybody's going to know it. All the churches that he's going to go around and appoint these elders, they're going to hear this. They're going to know these truths. And so Paul speaks with the authority of being an apostle. And he speaks to both the true child in the faith, Titus, but also the whole church. And we know this as we go along. You'll see it. It's obvious that he's talking to the whole church about what a healthy church is. We saw that the purpose was kind of given in Chapter 1, verse 5, and we're going to kind of pick up on that same point this week and, and, and see how it fits into the greater context. We, again, there's, when Paul wrote this letter, it wasn't five sermons. It was one sermon. It was one letter. He read it all together, and they kind of connect, and everything flows together very well. But if you look in verse 5, you see the purpose of the letter, one of the purposes, and we'll talk about how this first one's kind of developed as the book goes along. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. I'll call that today the overall mission. The overall mission of Titus. What he's supposed to do. That's what we saw the purpose of the book was. Really this book is not that complicated. You could outline it pretty simple. If you notice in 1 through 4 that's the introduction. And 1 through 4 is the introduction. Then at the end, in chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, that's the conclusion. And guess what? There's three sermons in between. There's three main concepts in between. That is, make straight with the help in verses 1, 5 to the end of chapter 1. And then there's another chapter. That chapter 2 is actually the second main point. It's a three-point sermon. In verse 1, 1 to 5... To 16 is one point. Point two would be chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. And chapter 3, verses 1 to 11 is the third point. So really it's a perfect three-point sermon. Three-point sermon. But what are we going to do? We're going to break down each one of those points. And each one of those points are going to be one 
standalone sermon by the grace of God. I'm actually going to preach a whole book in four weeks? No way. No way. Well, that's the hope. That's the hope. So, today as we continue our study, we will examine the first primary mark of a healthy church. What's a healthy church look like? What's it have? Our passage breaks into three sections. It breaks down into three sections. You see the overall mission, the overall mission, or the purpose of the letter verses, in verse 5. Appoint qualified leadership, help, and you'll see that as we go along. And then finally, make straight that which is crooked. Make straight that which is crooked. So let's start with where we left off last week. The overall mission of the church. You see it again, verse 5. I'll read it again. It's not going to hurt you. Look at it, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete. Left Titus in Crete, that island in the Mediterranean, a large island in the Mediterranean that had many cities, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. That was Paul's mission for Titus. And there's two main components to the mission. What are they? It listed here, at least. It's make straight that which is crooked. Remember, we talked about how this word is where we get our word for orthodontist. The, the, the doctors that straighten the teeth, right? To make sure their teeth are straight. Or they also used it for bones. If a bone was dislocated or broken, it would be somebody that would straighten the bone and make sure that it was straight, that it could heal correctly. The same is truthful, truthful for a healthy church and healthy churches. You must, what? Make straight what's crooked. Well, how do you do that? Well, that's actually implied by the second point. The second point and how it's tied with and appoint leadership help to help with the church. Those elders, those pastors, those overseers are supposed to help in making straight what's crooked. Does that make sense? It should be, as we see here, elders, plurality in every city in Crete, which implies every city should hopefully be able to have multiple elders, leaders in each church. I love pl the plurality of elders. You know why? Because we can help each other. We hold each other accountable, and it's not a one-man show. This is not Mike Sprott's church. It's Christ's church, and his elders work underneath his elders, or under him, as under shepherds. We all work together. That's why you ask one of us a question, often what will we say? We've got to talk to the other guys, because it's not about me. It's not about my opinion, or Mark's opinion, or Bob's opinion, or Jimmy's opinion. It's our goal to work together to do this right, right? And we work by the grace of God to accomplish that. That's a healthy church that has plurality of leaders in every church. Yet it also shows how God spreads his saving message and how he protects his people. What's he do? Well, he uses a plurality of elders to what? Make straight what is crooked. You'll see that in the next thing. You know, it's really not complicated. This book is so simple. I love it, how easy it is to follow. He says, make straight that which is crooked. Make straight that which is crooked. Appoint leadership to help in this shepherding of the church. And then guess what? The next section is what? Appoint leadership to help in this problem. Why? Because you need to make straight which is crooked. It's actually the outline. It's reversed. He does the same thing. It's laid out perfectly in this passage. From verse 5 to 16, that's exactly what unfolds. Appoint leadership, elders. Who are these elders? Qualified helpers. For the purpose of what? Making straight what's crooked. And you'll see in the second half that that happens. So what do you think the first point's going to be? Or the first point is obviously the overarching call, the mission. But the second point would be what? Appoint qualified leaders. Look at it. It's perfect. Appoint qualified leaders. Note, note in verse 6. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, 
For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. I don't know about you. But if I were to do a survey, all those that feel they are qualified and fit that bill, please stand up. I'm fairly sure not even our elders would jump to their feet. They would look at that and say, whoa, that's a list I feel like I fall way short of. Anybody else? All of us? I just want to give you some encouragement. Encouragement. And that is that God doesn't call his leadership to anything that he doesn't want the people to strive to accomplish also. Shepherds are supposed to teach sheep. And there, by the way, shepherds are ultimately what? Also sheep. They are supposed to uh, uh, do what? They're supposed to uh, strive to do the very thing that God's calling other people to do and be. So as we saw the overall mission, Paul calls Titus... Two is to make straight what was remaining to be straightened out. And this, coupled with the appointing elders, also known as overseers in verse 7, as pastors, they're also known as pastors in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and 1 Peter 5, to help with this process. So, by the way, what is an elder? An elder is an overseer. What's an overseer? It's an elder, and it's also a pastor. All three of those titles are interchangeable. They're just different terms used to describe what a pastor is, what an elder is, what an overseer is. So like in 1 Timothy, Paul lays out the qualifications for this pastor, elder, overseer. It's important to note that the list here and 1 Timothy are similar. The lists are similar, but they are different in some ways. It it actually helps to explain what each passage means by looking at both of them because they do have some of the similarities and that similarity helps to explain it, especially when we get to that nice little hard phrase there. You'll see it in a little bit, having children who believe. Come on, Sam, go for it. This picture of the leadership Titus was to appoint in every city on the island of Crete. Now, I want you to understand something. I want you to get this and think through this. Appoint multiple elders in every church, most likely plurality, but it's somewhat like this picture, and we're gonna, I'm going to play a little video. As I, I, as I thought through this, for a second, can you imagine if you had to, or any person or any man had to do this all the time? at every single moment, if this was his life, if it was called a snapshot. In other words, at any point, have y'all ever been in an inspection before? An inspection? Oh, some of y'all that were in the military, when we were in band, we used to have these inspections and our uniforms had to be perfect and everything had to be lined out. And if it wasn't, you got demerits, demerits, right? Well, it's not like that, in that at any moment you could be called to qualification. Does this mean, oh, Pastor Might actually got angry. He's disqualified. He's out. He, at that point, he was not slow to anger. He got a little angry, and boom, up, he's out. Is it that way? No, this is more like a time-lapse video, not a snapshot. What do I mean by that? If you look at a time-lapse video, what do you see about a person or a tree or like this tree? What do you see? Well, it starts real small and it grows up and you see the overall picture and you say, ah, that's a growing tree. That's a healthy tree, right? Can you play it? You get this idea? Watch this tree. This is animated. It's really cool. Here's the tree. That's one year, two years, three years, four years. Kind of cool, huh? Seven years, 
eight years, ten years, thirteen years. You get the gist, right? That's what it's like. This is what this is like when you're looking at this passage. You're seeing kind of an overview of the elder's life. As you look at him, as a time lapse, he's growing. And this is what his life looks like. It's over a period of time. Does that make sense? It involves time. It's not just one moment. At one moment, it could be tough. There could be spots where it could be hard. All you have to do is hang out in my house for a week, and you're going to see that. I'm, I'm a normal man. I'm a human. Now, as a whole, though, the direction of our lives as elders is this, that God is making and working through us to make us look like this. This is very much what we've talked about, perfect, uh, direction, not perfection. It's the same way in our own lives, right? As we look at our lives as a big picture, you see that we're growing. God is working. And, he's, and as a whole, this is a fruit-bearing tree. It's a tree that has these kind of qualities. No elder perfectly fits or fulfills these qualifications. There's only one pastor, shepherd, elder, overseer that ever did that perfectly. And who is that? Jesus, you got it. However, by grace through faith in God, he works in his leaders to make them qualified for leading his church. It's very important that we keep the big picture in mind. The context is making straight that which is, remains crooked. This is very important. Please make sure you note in verse 10, verse 10, for there are many rebellious men. For is there for a reason. Why is there a need for qualified elders? Why is there a need for qualified teachers to make straight what's crooked? Because there's what? Many rebellious men. So you have to have qualified leaders. So Paul exhorts Titus to appoint qualified men. Notice these men must be above reproach. Above reproach. This idea is mentioned twice in the Bible, isn't it? In, in this section. Look at verse 6. It says, namely, if any man is above reproach. And for the overseer must be above reproach. It's mentioned twice. Those two lead this idea or this one Greek word above reproach is literally means to be not able to be called out for rebellion or sinfulness. They must be blameless. This word probably is the summary of the qualifications in one. Not able to be accused of sin or rebellion in God's ways. Again, submissive to who? The Lordship of Jesus. Somebody that's submissive and blameless before the Lord. By the way, uh, do, do elders ever get accused? Oh yeah, they get accused a lot. Uh, some of it is accurate and some of it is false accusations, right? One of the reasons why you need to be blameless and the elders should be blameless is so that when the false accusations come, everybody goes, no, nope, that's garbage. That's not true. I know him. I know what this is about. I know what he's about. That's very important. And again, how does that happen? Well, it's by grace through faith. It's by God. It's God alone. It's not because we're something special because we're not. We're just men. This literally is the idea of being blameless. Blameless is, is both verse 6 in their homes and verse 7 and through 9 in their lives. This is how I like, I think Paul breaks it down. In verse 6, blameless in their homes, blameless in their homes. And in verse 7 to 9, blameless in their personal lives. So let's look at blameless in their homes. The elder must be a male. A male. This is how God established leadership in this church. As Paul states in 1 Timothy 2, which is also what? Another pastoral epistle. Is there confusion on whether or not we should have lady pastors in our church? 
No, there's not really, not if we stick with what Scripture says. It says a man must, or a woman rather, must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or preach or exercise authority rather over a man, but to remain quiet. That is 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Paul wasn't a male chauvinist, beloved. He wasn't afraid of female dominance. He did not have uh, male fragility going on. This was God's ordained plan for the church. And this is how God established it. It's not a cultural thing, by the way. It's not a, well, let's look at the context at that time. Because you know what Paul does as an as a illustration right after saying, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, the very next thing is for Adam and Eve. Well, when does that go back to? Creation. It's the creation order. Again, this is how God did it. Is it me wanting to hold on to power? Is it us males wanting to keep our position of authority? No, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with what? Scripture. This is what God says. So we need to go with what Scripture says. And the elder must be the leader, a male, men. The elder must be a one-woman man. This is primarily pointing to the commitment of the man to his wife. He is completely, wholeheartedly committed to his wife in Christ. By the way, by implication, doesn't this eliminate polygamy, homosexuality, and women pastors? A woman, woman, man would be what? Elders must be completely committed to their woman. Now, I do believe a man can be an elder without being married at all. A single man can be an elder. However, because a man's commitment to his wife is one way to identify him, to look at the tree over a time-lapse thing, right? What would that imply for a single man? You need to take longer to look at the tree. You've got to look at the other things to see whether or not he's qualified. And so what does that mean? I think it would be you'd need more time-lapse video. You'd need longer time to see whether or not this guy fits into these qualifications before you say, hey, this guy should be a pastor or an elder. The same goes for what? Having children. If you don't have children and you're a pastor, an elder, then it's going to be hard to identify what? how well he manages his household. So it's going to take more time. And I would say we would be very, very slow to appoint a single man that has no children. Not because we're trying to keep the dominance and trying to do that. That's not what it's about, right? It's about what God says. We want to do what he says because we want to have a healthy church, right? Notice the elder must be blameless having Children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, I don't know about you guys, but the first hundred times I read that in my NASB, I thought, uh-oh, that's a problem. Why is that a problem? Well, what if you don't have children? Do they believe? What if you have a baby, a little child? Well, you don't, want, you don't know whether they believe or not, so does that mean that that's, you're eliminated? What if you have children that are not even to the point where they can understand? Are we going to, is that what it's about? No, I think the passage is really about their consciences and their way of life, that they're faithful to their authorities in their house. I think it's should be translated, having faithful or trustworthy children, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. That's kind of what the second half kind of develops, right? Not debauched and not rebellious. Now again, does this mean that no elder that has any rebellious child can never be. Well, again, look at the time-lapse video. Be careful. And also understand rebellion here doesn't mean that they didn't sin. Because if that were true, what does that mean? Nobody's an elder. We have none. Because we all have what? Sinful children. 
It has to be the overarching idea of submission to authority. I don't agree with the translation of having children who believe. First and foremost, no parent is ultimately responsible for a child's salvation. As much as I pray for my children to be saved, I cannot save any of my children. Everybody knows that, right? We believe in God's sovereignty. We do train their consciences, though. It is our role. It is this whole idea of nurture and nature are true. What is nurturing your child? It is a responsibility of the parents to nurture their child, to teach their child, to give their child what? A conscience, to develop their child's conscience. Not give their child a conscience, but to develop their conscience. To make sure that they know what is right and wrong. But it's also a nature issue, ultimately. And the nature issue, I can't change natures, can I? I can't change anybody. But as an elder, as a teacher, we all have to be about training the conscience, pointing them to the truth, and showing them where their nature can be changed. And that's God in the gospel. As God works through us, he changes our nature, right? But ultimately, as elders, we're not ultimately responsible for their belief or unbelief. I think if this was the requirement for elders, Paul would have also said that in 1 Timothy, right? In verse 3? In chapter 3, when he was going over the qualifications for elders, wouldn't he have said, hey, the children have to be believers before he can be a pastor? But he doesn't. In 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, he describes that same idea that I talked about previously, not having children believe, but training your children properly and managing the whole household well, he says in 1 Timothy 3, 4, he must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So you get the idea, right? This is the point. Now, I know at a point like this, when I preach a sermon like this, there's probably a thousand questions that everybody has in their minds. There are questions that are going through your minds. I have to tell you, I can't answer every one of those questions. Because if I did, I would be on this verse for the next 20 years. I can't give caveats on every single thing. But just know, as a whole, the leadership, what? The men should be qualified by running their houses well. As under the Lord keeping their children and training their children's consciences that they can grow up and go outside the house. Whether they're believers or not, they can still have a conscience that can keep them from what? Being known as rebellious and debauched citizens. So the emphasis in 1 Timothy 3 is the same one in Titus 1 here, having children who are trustworthy or faithful and to authorities, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. The point again is elders should raise their children to respect authority and to follow their consciences. Now, very important for us all to take note of. Listen closely. What's the main point of the section? Let's see if you can remember. What's the main point of the section? Make straight that which is crooked, right? Okay. So why would you point elders that know how to have raise children by the grace of God to be what? Not rebellious. Why do you need elders that are qualified to do that? Because, look at it, verse 10, for there are many rebellious men. Same word, rebellious. If you have men that are able to teach their own family and train their own children not to be rebellious, then what are they going to be able to do? They're going to be able to make straight that which is crooked within the church. And that is correct, the rebellious men. Again, it's direction, not perfection, and it's only possible by God's grace. And like all these qualifications, every believer is called to do these duties by God's grace, not his own abilities. By the way, the implication is the nature of the child is the same as the root of verse 10, the rebellious men. It's very easy for what? The nature of a child to be rebellious, right? And by grace, God works in us to help raise our children to what? 
know conscience, have a conscience, have an awareness of what is right and wrong, and then ultimately to find their only hope is in who? Christ, right? To see that their nature is fallen and they need God. And the same is true of the rebellious men that come into the church and try to lead it astray. A qualified leader is not a perfect parent, beloved, but by God's grace, he works through him to lead his family and then to lead the church. So the first elder, so first the elder should be blameless in his home. Next, they must be blameless in their lives. Blameless in their lives. Notice, you thought that was bad. Wait until you see this. An elder, an overseer, the same person as the elder. This is the one who is responsible for safeguarding or seeing that something is done in a correct way. A guardian, as one Bible dictionary states. Paul told the elders of Ephesus, what? In Acts 20, verse 28, Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The overseer must be what? Blameless, above reproach, with regards to his personal life. Why? Or because he's God's steward. You see that? As God's steward? What does that mean? It means we are God's house managers. You know what we are? We are his slaves. We are his house slaves. We are what Joseph was to Potiphar. You ask, what am I signing up for? If I desire to be an elder and become an elder, what are you signing up to be? I'm signing up to be a slave of God's house. I'm his servant. I do what he wants and I manages his house. Just like Joseph did for Potiphar, we are to God's church. The elder is God's house servant or manager. Overseers are stewards of God's house. So Paul gives five negative qualities here that must be avoided to be blameless stewards of God's house. He says, not self-willed. Notice, not self-willed. Not consumed with self-importance. Not stubborn not arrogant. Boy, I don't know about you guys, but one of the hardest things to see over the last three or four years has been major, major biblical leaders falling. People like Ravi Zacharias, James McDonald, all these major figures. Joshua Harris has now come out with a podcast. You know, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. The, he had a huge church, mega church. He has started a whole new podcast on how to deconstruct your faith. Teaching, saying that because I taught these truths and I hurt so many people, hurt, made them Christians, I want to teach you how to deconstruct your faith and not believe what you've been taught. What gets a person to this place? I would argue, it starts with some of these very important qualities. Not self-willed, not thinking that it's all about you. In some ways, I love that our church is a small church and not a mega church. I don't want any of that. And every time someone leaves for various reasons that people leave, and it really hurts, it's a good knockdown to my pride to think, Mike, you're nothing. It's not about you. Who cares about you, Mike? If I were to die this week, praise God, Stephen would probably start next week. And it would be a lot better than me. It's not about us. And if it's all about our kingdom and us building something here, then we're in the wrong place, aren't we? You don't want an elder that's all about himself. How do I preach about being a humble leader? Impossible, isn't it? I, I, the first thing I think of is Moses writing the Pentateuch. What did it say? Moses was the most humble man in all the world. How can he write the Pentateuch and say that? You ready? Because he knows God. See, when you know God, you realize you're nothing. God doesn't need me to build this church. 
I'm nothing apart from the grace of God. God is holy and just. And I tremble that he is in the audience now. He is the only audience that I have right now. And as I speak, I want to honor him, and that's all that matters. I could care less whether you like it or not. That sounds harsh, but I know God, and his criticism is much worse than yours. And at the same time, his love is far greater than yours. He loves me. He's my Abba. And I want to preach this right. It's not about me. It's about him. That's how you make things straight. When it's not about you, as opposed to the rebellious men that are insubordinate and want it to be all about who? Them. Not quick-tempered, short-tempered, or quick to wrath. Not having a short fuse. Not given to wine. This is literally, if you're translated, one who sits alongside wine. Oh, so what does that mean? Ultimately, elders must not be prone to run to alcohol. They don't need their glass of wine to get through the day. They find their hope and their satisfaction in who? Jesus. He's enough. Because after all, the pressure is enormous. The burden is great. Read 2 Corinthians. If you doubt that, read 2 Corinthians. It's enormous. There are times where the pressure and the burden of those that are straying or those that are hurting is so overwhelming that if wine was my go-to, I'd be in a lot of trouble. I'd, you'd have a drunkard as a pastor. Beloved, our elders can't be that. Not pugnacious, literally not a striker, quick to fight, exert violence. Not greedy for dishonest gain. 1 Timothy 3.3 3 puts it free from the love of money. Elders can't be consumed with their wealth to place, to place their dishonest gain. They'll go anywhere to get that. In contrast to those who teach, look at verse 11, the rebellious ones Teach for sordid gain, for the sake of sordid gain. Beloved, you know, you can know a lot about who you should listen to when it comes to preaching the word. You know where you look? Their bank account. Now, that doesn't mean, that does not mean that we should be poverts, okay? That does not mean that pastors should be those that are just squeaking by, just barely making it. Well, you know this from 1 Timothy, right? Where it says they're worthy of double honor. However, doesn't mean that we should be millionaires and that we should be loaded with all kinds of riches. I'll never forget when Piper went to one of the shepherds' conference. It was a little harsh, but he did it, and he got away with it. Shepherds' conference, he told them, hey, why are you put me in the Marriott? Just put me in somebody else's house. There's an element of that that's true, right? Doesn't mean if you ever see Pastor Mike in a Marriott, crank! <laughs> but beloved, it's not about being greedy and having money. If you're going into the ministry for money, you're going for the wrong reason, right? We're not going to be rich. Because ultimately it's about Christ and our riches are in heaven. And all of these we are supposed to be blameless. Then Paul gives seven strong contrasting characteristics that should mark us. Look at these real quick. Look, hospitality, friend of stranger, willing to open his house, share what God's given them, loving what is good. By the way, you want to know what our, church, what our elder board is? They do this. Now, do they get to every one of you? No, they don't. But they open their houses most of the time every week. This is who they are. I'm thankful for our elder board. I'm thankful for the other men that do this. You know, we started the church in Mark's living room 16 years ago. And poor Sandy 
<laughs> Hospitable. Loving what is good. That is, friend of what's praiseworthy. Sensible. That is, one who is control of oneself, is wise and thoughtful and self-controlled. It gets hard. Look at this next one. Just. Just. What's this? Righteous. It's the word righteous. Obviously, positionally by grace, right? Only we're declared right by God, by grace, through faith in Christ. But also, I believe this is talking about the direction of the pastor's life, that he's a righteous man, an upright man, a just man. Can you see why I was... I was listening to a sermon this week by Paul Washer. Man, if you ever need some humbling, just pull him out. Play a Paul Washer sermon and you will be on the ground, I promise. And as he was preaching, he was talking about his own sinfulness and how he sees his own sinfulness and how humbled he was by the holiness and the bigness of God and the righteousness of God. Beloved, do you know this is exactly how I feel? This is exactly how your elders feel. Hey, do you understand that my job is to dive into the Word of God every week to spend hours and hours and hours getting ready to teach you what it says? Let me ask you a question. Do you think that's like, oh, this is a walk in the park, no problem. No, it's convicting. Because we see the holiness of God on display. We see who God is. And the closer we get to the sun, the more we're exposed as the sinners that we are. The sin is shown. I can't get away from a week that I don't cry out to my God. Oh God, have forgive, forgive me. There is not a day that goes by in the world that, word that I am not convicted. Is there anybody that studies this that's not convicted? So how? How can I consider myself a just man? How can you see me as a just man? Well, it's by grace through faith alone. And it's definitely a time-lapse video. It's the direction by His grace, but not because I'm knit. Again, you get some snapshots during the week. My poor kids and my wife, they see the snapshots. You say, well, how bad is it? You want the, you want the gory details? <laughs> Go ask them. They're not afraid to tell you. The reality is this. I am a sinner saint. By the grace of God, I walk with him, recognizing that I have so far to go. We all do, don't we? By the grace of God, I see Christ. I see righteousness in Jimmy and Bob and Mark and Stephen. I see it. They are devout. They are actually, this is the adjectival form of holy, pure, without fault. Again, this is self-explanatory, isn't it? It makes sense that pastors should be characterized by holiness if they're responsible for leading others to pursue holiness, right? Self-controlled, that is temperate or self-controlled or disciplined. You understand that if, a, if an elder isn't self-disciplined, if he's not self-controlled, you know what you have? Horrible, horrible sermons. I've, I've, I've been in those pastors. I, I talked to a pastor one time. I walked in and, and said, how do you prepare your sermons? He said, well, about 15 minutes before I go... I open up my Bible and think of a passage that I really like. I read it one time and I say, hey, I can do this. Let's go into hell with the water pistol. <laughs> that church split. Wonder what their problem was. We have to be disciplined men. 
Paul then concludes the list with probably the pinnacle of the whole list. And it's the one that is the nearest and dearest to my heart. Look at it. Holding fast the faithful word which is accordance with the teaching. This means holding fast to the trustworthy word as it has been taught. This is holding with a fierce attachment as one commentator stated. The elder must be resolved that God's word is authoritative, inerrant, sufficient, and superior to everything that we need. That we will hold on to it tighter than anything else. And you ask me, well, is there a crack for anything else? No, there isn't. And there won't be. Why? Because that's what I'm supposed to be. And the moment you say, I don't want this, is the day you need to leave. You're too harsh, Pastor Mike. I'm sorry, but I have nothing else to hold on to. This is it. And any of the elders that don't do that, we would ask them to leave. And the elders would tell me to leave if I do not hold fast to this. The Word of God is what matters. It's valuable above everything. The pastoral epistles emphasize it. The whole rest of this book is going to emphasize it. It is what we need. It is what we know. It is what we study. It is what we learn. It is what we teach. It is what we preach. It is what we live. It is what we are consumed with. This is what we do. We might not have all the programs. We might not do everything perfect. But I'm telling you, I'm going to stick to this. This is what we're about. That's a healthy church. And yes, I'm fired up. We hold to the word according to the teachings of God's messengers, the apostles. We do it. The reason God called us to this standard is so that we will be capable to correct what is broken. That's the point. Which brings us to the last qualification. Capable pastors. It's not looking good, is it? Hang in there. We'll get there. Capable pastors. Notice the purpose clause right in the middle of it. Why do we hold fast to the word of God? Why? So that we will be able to both exhort. This is encourage, call alongside in sound doctrine. And refute those who contradict. Who are the ones that contradict? It's the many rebellious men that he's just about to talk about. This is the primary purpose of the elder, overseer, pastor. This is what churches should be wanting out of their pastors. I admit, I admit, I'm not the greatest administrator. I know, I don't know how to make many programs. I admit that I'm also not the perfect communicator. I admit I stumble and bumble over my words occasionally and say stupid things. But by the grace of God, we exhort in sound doctrine and we refute those who contradict. Beloved, this is the primary reason to come to a church. This is the primary reason. You come to hear the word of God. If you don't, you should check your heart. We want to know the word, don't we? We want doctrine, don't we? Theology, the study of God. Anthropology, the study of man. Bibliology, the study of the Bible. Hermitology, the study of sin. Soteriology, the study of salvation. Eschatology, the study of last times. Pneumatology, the study of the Spirit. Angelology, the study of... All the studies of God. We want study, sound doctrine. Why do we want sound doctrine? 
Because as we will see in Titus, understanding God and these doctrines produces good deeds. Really? Right understanding of God produces obedience in the beloved. For as we know God, as we know what's coming, as we know what our angels, as we know who we are, we are then encouraged to what? Walk by faith in him doing good deeds. So that's what we do. And those that are teaching wrong doctrines, what should they be done? What should we do as elders? Refute them. Refute them. We must do it with all the other things in mind, self-controlled, gentleness, just, holy, gracious, kind, all those things, yes, with that kind of idea, not beating our children and our fellow sheep, but loving them and refuting because, look at it, verse 13, there are many rebellious men. And we are to reprove them. How? Verse 13. How are we supposed to reprove false teachers, rebellious men? How? Severely. Severely. Pastor Mike, you're a little too harsh. There's a time for harshness. Now, does that mean that I'm supposed to be harsh with every one of you at all times? No. Hear me. I'm supposed to also encourage You've got to understand, beloved, though, as elders, as pastors, we are teaching what? A lot of evil. And not everybody's at the same spot at the same time. And we're going through books of the Bible, and so what does that mean? That there'll be different emphasis at different spots in different passages. This passage calls me to do what? You ready? That's what it tells me to do. Smack them. It does, I'm sorry, you brood of vipers. <laughs> Severely rebuke them. It's, I don't know how to get around it. That's what the passage says. Yet with gentleness, with compassion, grace, love, and we'll see here, very important, with the goal of what? Restoration. That's crucial. Restoration. So what do we do? We make straight that which is crooked. And I don't have to go into it that much. It's almost like it's been set up perfect, hasn't it? Paul did it perfectly. For there are many rebellious men. A few rebellious men? No, many of them. If there is any man that's blameless, but here it's, there are many what? Rebellious men. Yowzer. Empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be what? Okay, what are the elders supposed to do? They're supposed to silence them. Yowzer. Because they are what? Upsetting whole families. Isn't this interesting? The elder is all about what? Having a blameless family that's doing things right, what are rebellious men all about? Turning over families. Turning it upside down and making disasters out of families. What are we supposed to do with those that are turning families upside down? We're supposed to silence them, reprove them what? Sternly. That's what it says. It's not me. This is what it says. This is what it says. So does Paul do it? Oh yeah, wait till you see this stern rebuke of the many rebellious men. Look at it. Teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, one of the what? Rebellious men. A prophet of their own. That's tongue in cheek. A prophet of their own said, Cretans are liars. Always liars. <laughs> Evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Boy, that's not culturally kind. He just called Cretans what? Always liars. Evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Can you imagine? Pastor stands up and says, you know, Americans are always liars. 
evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Hmm. Okay, so was Paul saying, no, they didn't, they're not really that way. No, look at the next phrase. This testimony is true. He uses their own slamming of each other to what? Confirm their total depravity. That's pretty harsh, beloved. That is about as harsh as you get. And he doesn't say, sometimes liars, often liars, always liars. And you're evil beasts. And these evil beasts are evil wild beasts. And they're lazy gluttons, which implies what? They're useless, greedy individuals. This testimony is true. That was a little harsh. But it was having an effect on what? It was turning over families. Beloved, we must reprove crooked teachers. Look at it, verse 13. This testimony is true. For this re- reason, reprove them severely. Now notice, and I cannot stress to you enough, this is so crucial. What is the purpose of the reproving? Is the purpose of the reproving to say, look, I'm better than you are. No, that's not the point. It's not pride. It's about what? It's so that, so that they may be sound in the faith. So that the, those that are rebellious will come to their senses and what? Turn to God and have a sound faith in Christ. That's the point. Not paying to myths or attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Fleeing from the ways of the world to pursue Christ. Reprove crooked teachers. I think we got it. What do you think? And then he lays it down. And he gives a summation. A summation of the crooked teachers. Look at it. It's real clear. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Yet again, the, the crooked are exposed and contrasted with the pure. And by the way, this pure is not just one person, it's the plurality, pure. The pure are the believers who have been saved by grace through faith. The pure are the ones that in Titus chapter 3, he'll talk about, have been washed, have been renewed by the Holy Spirit that worked in them. That we are pure. Not that we're perfect, because we're still in these bodies of death. They're seeking purity in all their behavior to the pure. All things are pure. We're seeking to what? Be clean, be, be set apart, be different, be distinct. Because God has worked in us. It's amazing how this lines up so well with First and Second Timothy. This is a common theme in Titus and the other pastoral epistles. The truth is a transformed heart by the truth of the gospel, what? Makes us seek to be who we are in Christ. To walk worthy of that calling that God has given us. But in contrast, the, the unpure, the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. What do we say about doctrine? What does doctrine do? Doctrine produces good deeds. What does wrong doctrine do? Produces Evil deeds, defilement, disobedience. So, this is the first primary message of Paul to Titus on establishing a healthy church. First, we're to appoint qualified leadership that are capable of setting what is straight. This is the first mark of a healthy church, a qualified church leadership that is helping to encourage the saints and correct the rebellious. 
by God's grace, beloved, I believe this is our church. I don't believe it's perfect. I don't believe we're in a perfect elder board, right, guys? But by God's grace, he is working through us to hold up the word of God. Sadly, I believe that this mark of a healthy church is the one that's missing the most in our American churches. This is where it all, this is where it all starts. When you have churches being blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the tradition of men, you know there's a problem and it starts where? In the leadership. It's in the leadership. That's why the American evangelical church is where it's at today. I'm just being honest. I want to call you Beg you, plead with you, pray for your elders. We need Christ. Times are going to get harder, and we need to stand firm, holding fast to the word of truth. Please pray for us. I pray that we will remain faithful to this mission. We need Christ, don't we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Extremely convicting. God, we pray that you continue to use these broken pots and Make us into the image of your son as your word promises. We need you, Father. We know that we are prone to sin, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And at the same time, we know that by your spirit, our hearts have been melded to yours and awakened to the joy of knowing Christ and him crucified, resurrected, and reigning. God, you are our all in all. Your word is what we long to preach and teach and live. Take us, God, and use us for your glory. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God and our Savior. Amen.